Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram Ephraim and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Thank you very much, Polly, for reading to us. Please keep Isaiah 7 open in front of you because, as you can tell from a reading on on that, even if it's familiar in some ways, uh, it's quite tricky stuff, isn't it? Not a a piece of cake. The um, Thursday morning groups, I think, had a head start on us. So if you're stuck, ask some of the women that were there on Thursday mornings for a helping hand, and they may be able to help you. Not with that passage, but I'm going to help as well, but we're going to need God to open our eyes. So let's pray with those words before us. And we want to fasten our attention, Lord, on that uh, name that we've already read and sung, God with us, Emmanuel, praying that by your spirit, you would be with us as we turn to your word this morning. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin, um, this is a cue to David, with a photograph this morning, if I may. It should come up on the screen. There you go. And um, I like this one of me. Um, it, must, it must be my good side, 
Uh, not the back of my head with the balding hair that the Zoom congregation get to see when I'm singing hymns standing in the, at the pew to sing. But um, this is a photo I like. Uh, I need to give you the context of the photo. This is taken in Paris outside um, 29 Rue Serpent. Okay, it was taken just a few weeks ago when Susu and I went to Paris to celebrate our anniversary. And we found ourselves in a restaurant recommended by John and Polly Stanton, quite near an old haunt of mine, 29 Rue Serpent. This was the location when I was on a language year abroad where the tiny university Christian union groups held meetings for a Bible study. Uh, Regularly there, I used to go along. And uh, we showed up 35 years later, and that was what was still happening there. The day we were there, there was a little Bible study on at the back, a bunch of people bang smack in the heart of one of the most secular uh, cities in the world, just a a stone's throw away from where Sartre would have been um, having his coffee in the the Domago or whatever whatever he had to to drink there, absinthe probably. (laughs) Right at the heart of the university of atheist philosophies, that sort of neighborhood, Bible studies happening. And I love, therefore, the little um, keep calm and take a Bible uh, poster at the back. I think we can extinguish the photograph for now, but I want you to remember that phrase, keep calm and take a Bible. Um, We're on Advent Sunday, and as we look at the first few prophecies in the book of Isaiah in the run-up to Christmas, it seems to me that that is exactly the message. Keep calm amidst the darkness of God's enemies. Trust God and don't panic Hold on to God's word, and if I'm allowed to invent a word, hold on to God's withness. Emmanuel means God with you. So that encouragement, hold on to God's word, hold on to God's withness, it gets expressed in our passage both positively and negatively. The positive encouragement is in verse 4. Let me read that verse out again, or a bit of it to you. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. The warning uh, negatively gets expressed in verse 9. What will happen if instead of calmly trusting God, his people scurry and strategize and try and make alliances with God's enemies? Answer, if you do not stand firm in your faith, You will not stand at all. That's how he puts it in verse 9. Now let me just say that that is a timeless message, it seems to me, from one end of the Bible to the other. But it's very much what God wants to say to us, this side of the Christmas story where we live today, this side of the birth and the life of Jesus Christ. If that message, stay calm and trust God, was worth saying to King Ahaz, In his day, 734 years before Christ, it bears repetition for our day 2,000 years after Jesus' coming. And not just in secularized Paris, with all the radical anti-Christian philosophy that France has produced, it's exactly what God wants to say to us with confusion in the Church of England, war in the Middle East, and gloomy pronouncements about rising temperatures from COP28. It's what God wants to say to the individual Christian who
who is overwhelmed with health concerns or financial anxiety, count to ten, take a deep breath, and trust God. Keep calm and take a Bible. Hold on to God's word. Hold on to God's witness. Remember his Christian name, Emmanuel, God with us. So you've got my two headings in advance. Um, The rest is just post-amble. We've had a preamble, it's post-amble. God's word, God's witness. Because in the verses we had read, God says, keep calm, trust me, on two different occasions in two slightly different ways, um, repeating the lesson for emphasis. So in verses 1 to 9, the lesson comes to King Ahaz a first time. As I mentioned, the date is 734 BC, and Ahaz is king in Jerusalem. But trouble is brewing, because Aram, which is modern-day Syria, has made an alliance with Israel. This is really confusing. All the names get switched and swapped around. Israel, also known as Ephraim within our passage. But Israel means that the ten tribes in the north, remember which had split away from Jerusalem in the south. Aram has made an alliance with Israel in the north. On their own, those two states would be too weak for the superpower yet further north, Assyria. So Israel and Aram have clubbed together, and to strengthen their alliance, they want Ahaz down in the south, in Jerusalem, to join up with them. That way, we'll be invincible, they think. So in a show of strength, they march on Jerusalem, and Ahaz and his people are quaking in their boots, or as it says here, shaking like leaves or trees in a forest. Enter the prophet Isaiah with a message from God. Or rather, enter Isaiah accompanied by his son, whose name is a message from God. Let's look again at verse 3. I'm going to be selective in the verses we actually look at, so please do look when I ask you to and mention a verse number. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart. I suppose that the location of the encounter is easy to miss there, but it's important. Ahaz, it's clear, is out inspecting the end of the aqueduct which supplied Jerusalem with water. Why is he doing that? Did you ponder that question? Well, that source of water was crucial if enemies were marching against Jerusalem. Surrounding your city with soldiers camped outside the walls on every side, you better hope the aqueduct is working at that point. So Ahaz is being strategic. And that's when God's messenger, Isaiah, comes to him and says, Hello, King Ahaz. Let me introduce my son, Remy, to you. Remy the remnant. That's my rough translation of Shi'ar Jashub, okay? I'm struggling how to translate the name. Poor kid, given this name by his parents, Shi'ar Jashub. But Isaiah's son has to embody the message Isaiah has to bring. A remnant will return. 
Now, we talked about warning and encouragement. That's a warning, isn't it? Because God's word is saying, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. There'll be disaster for God's people. Make an alliance for Assyria with, against Assyria, and you will pay for it. So it's a warning. But by way of encouragement, there will be a remnant. God's people won't be totally destroyed. I'm doing some gentle listening to a book. I was telling Gideon about this book I'm listening to on my walks with the dog at the moment, about the chaos in Italy at the end of the Second World War. There had been a a political alliance, you'll be aware of this if you know the history, between Hitler and Mussolini. And when Mussolini fell from power in Italy, people told the English prisoners of war in Italian, the sort of Italian they could understand, Benito finito. It was meant to be really good news. I.e., you don't need to fear him anymore. But of course, he was replaced with other possible power brokers and alliances. And you had to be very careful who you hitched yourself up to in those days. Because power was changing hands so rapidly, or at least human power was shifting. Leaders coming and going. Of course, the power which holds the universe steady, the power behind those political ups and downs, the rise and fall of the empires and ideologies, that power was rock steady. And Isaiah is saying something similar here about the unrest in his day. These enemies, Aram and Israel, are going to be finito in just a moment. They'll soon be too scattered to be a people and to be a threat. The head of Damascus in Aram is only resin, and the head of Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, it's only Ramalia. Your head, Isaiah implies, is God Almighty. Put your trust in him. So don't listen to the taunts of the enemies. Listen instead to God's word. That's my paraphrase of verses 5 to 7. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. God's word is speaking. It will not take place. It will not happen. So God speaks into the chaos And his word outlasts all the other voices. And Isaiah and his son, Remy the Remnant, are physical, bodily reminders of the word of God. So that's the first scene. It's a call to hold on to God's word. God knows the end from the beginning. And when he says something, it will happen. No doubt about it, however improbable. It looks. So for us, the message is stay calm. Take a Bible. This book will never let you down. Uh, For them, in their day, the word of God has legs, doesn't it? It was Isaiah the prophet and his son. But the truth is no different. Hold on to the word of God. Now, from verse 10 onwards, there's another scene which I'm giving a slightly different heading to. Hold on to God's withness. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. 
Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. See, quoting his Bible, he's not about to treat God like a magic genie at his beck and call. He's so spiritual as he talks that way. But Isaiah sees right through that. He's probably already got his political plans in place. So the last thing Ahaz wants now is God overturning his machinations. Please don't complicate things with a sign, God. He's thinking. It's actually just a total sham when he says, oh, I wouldn't dream of testing God. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, verse 13. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Just imagine what it was like being Isaiah, having to deal with kings like Ahaz. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, that was a promise in the short term to begin with to Ahaz in the first instance and a sign which in his lifetime very quickly would bring immediate devastating results because a child would be born and before that child had grown up to maturity the crazy scheming of Ahaz and Aram and Israel would be left in tatters. The new empire, the new kid on the block would have flattened Syria and Israel and from then on Jerusalem would still be pretty feeble, powerless and in only a few more years they would be invaded and exiled. So the sign of a young woman bearing a child would happen whether Ahaz wanted it or not and the devastating judgment of God would follow. The million dollar question of course is who was that child in Ahaz's lifetime and you can imagine I've had great fun this week uh, reaming through lots of discussion Amongst the scholars, you won't be surprised to hear that. Could it be a child born to Ahaz by one of his young concubines? And as that child grows up, uh, the dynasty of Jerusalem never recovers. Could it be a rerun of the message from Isaiah's strangely named, strangely named children, Remy Remnant, or his other kid, Boo? Boo is um, his name. Boo is for booty. You'll get to that if we read on in Isaiah some other time. Two kids Isaiah had with two outcomes, either a remnant, which means survival for the faithful people of God, or booty and plunder. That's all that would be left when the enemies invaded. So that could be the message. At least there's some hope. God with us if we trust him, however hard the future will be. Perhaps the most plausible fulfillment in the short term was a metaphorical rebirth for God's people. There is a future for God's people, for the virgin daughter of Zion. That's actually a title for Jerusalem, which has already appeared in the book of Isaiah. There will be a remnant, a future people of God. Come hell or high water, God is with his people. So the very same message which had been communicated by the young child born to Isaiah the prophet. Those are some of the options. There were probably others that I've not quite uh, 
digested and relayed to you. But on Advent Sunday, you and I know there would be a deeper fulfillment of that promise as well. A young teenage mother, not yet married, living behind the iron curtain of the day under the brutal occupying armies of Rome, bearing a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. We had a lovely talk with the children present at um, 9.30, and the preacher was nervous about how you go into the virgin birth without going through all the facts of life and the birds and the bees with uh, many young children present. He did it beautifully, delicately. He talked about the simple fact that she wasn't married, uh, she didn't have a husband, and the laws of nature got bypassed by the one who set up those laws of nature. God can do it. And it was great. The adults were edified and the children were still suitably mystified. It was good. Anyway, um, it was great. Uh, How wonderful, though, bearing a child conceived by the Holy Spirit, this one who grew up within his lifetime, short lifetime, to bring God's kingdom to pass dramatically. God with us, fully human, living our life and going on to die our death. And I just keep trying to bring it home to myself to, to, to feel the wonder of that this Christmas, this Advent season again. What an amazing sign that is for those who have eyes to see it. Fully God and fully human, right on our level, so he can bring God and humanity together as no one else can. Stay calm and trust God, God's witness. Can I say that's not just a bright idea of some theologians that this is what uh, Isaiah 7 is about. This is heaven's interpretation of Isaiah 7. If you don't believe me, remember who quoted Isaiah chapter 7 to Joseph. You remember that incident? It was an angel who said this is what Isaiah 7 is about. One of God's messengers. We need another picture. I've got a slide to come up here. Thank you. Um, And it needs some explanation. But we don't need the other two slides that will just confuse me, okay? I found it very helpful when other people illustrate the Old Testament prophets in terms of climbing a mountain. You might find it hard to imagine, but it is one of my hobbies with slightly more huffing and puffing each year. Often, when you approach a hill from the distance, it looks from afar as if there's one obvious peak. Call that peak one. But when you get to that mini summit, it's actually a false peak, okay? And there's yet more beyond. And you easily find there's yet another height to climb beyond the next hill crest. And that, of course, you can see is a a flag on the ultimate summit there. I think the the picture can go off now, um, and I'll try and explain it a bit more. Something like that is happening here. We've got two predictions in our reading in Isaiah 7, separated by some time. In the second one, God says there'll be a son born to a woman, and that will be a sign of God's kingdom for you in your day. That's when the wheels will fall off the bicycle for Israel. But it's not the end of the story, is it? The summit will be when Jesus Christ comes, 700 years on. He is Emmanuel, God 
with us. Oh, somebody says, that is a long, long time to wait. Yeah, but if God has fulfilled these things in the short term, in the rise and fall of Syria and Israel and Assyria and Jerusalem, if he's fulfilled these things in the short term, we ought to be able to trust him in the longer term future as well, shouldn't we? So the message to us on Advent Sunday is don't lose your nerve about the Bible or about Jesus, which we are often, often inclined to do, aren't we, if we're honest? Let me mention one way I've noticed we're tempted to downplay the wonder of the Emmanuel sign. Have you spotted how it's easier to talk vaguely about being a person of faith but not to specify whether you have faith in Jesus? Or am I the only person that has that trouble? We'll even talk about having a relationship with God. But we stop short of mentioning the only way we can actually have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a sense, I think, in which people are okay with others talking like theists, God-fearers, just as long as they're not Christian theists, worshippers of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we edit the name of Jesus out of our God talk, which is crazy, isn't it? The wonder of it, God with us, that's what Jesus is all about. Um, There now follows a brief party political broadcast, okay? I wonder if anybody else got this through the door this last week. Well, it's a party political broadcast, but you will search high and low to discover which party it's for. There's a name on there. I could not believe it. I'm still looking now. I did find it once. There we go. It's some conservatives. Okay. So I'm not wanting. I'm not going to mock the Conservative Party from the pulpit. But it's interesting that that is a slightly toxic word for them. They're not leading with. Uh, we're the Conservative Party, and we want your vote. And we do a similar thing with Jesus Christ. It's as if we're ashamed to mention Jesus Christ publicly. So we just put him down in. in Sotto voce, don't say much, keep it quiet. Because we're slightly embarrassed of the name of Jesus. Can I encourage you not to lose your nerve about mentioning Jesus? I was thrilled that somebody had the courage to speak about Jesus openly at Deanery Synod last week. It's a very difficult place to do that. Um, Let me add a couple more application points for you. We had a lovely one. This was really for the children at 9.30. We're talking about Advent calendars, opening up the door, and maybe there's no verse from the Bible. There may just be a chocolate, but it's nothing to stop anybody as they open up a door on an Advent candle, uh, sorry, Advent calendar, from saying, Lord, I'm opening up the door of my life to you. God with us. Today, Lord, for this door of the advent calendar as it were I'm opening up my life to you be with me through this day can you pray like that and uh, welcome Christ in day by day during advent
you don't have an advent calendar, the preacher said, just, just open the door of your bedroom. Say, as I go through the door of the bedroom and out into the day-to-day, be with me, Lord. I'm opening my, my life to you afresh. Great thing to do. Open the door of your mouth in prayer. Come to that prayer meeting, please. We believe God's going to be with us. So let's max it up and pray together as we pray. Don't lose your nerve about Christ this Christmas, will you? Hold on to God's word and hold on to God's witness, God with us. Let's pray together. We ask, Heavenly Father, for uh, soft hearts to heed your word to us and to take it to heart and to trust you in difficult and dark days, whatever the sources of the difficulty and darkness might be for us. Uh, We thank you that you are faithful. You keep your promises. We thank you for Jesus Christ that he came into our world and we can know you through him. We thank and praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for speaking to us from God's word. Uh, One of the ways we hold on and the ways we keep our nerve is to constantly remind ourselves of the faith that we believe in. And we're going to do that now in the words of the Nicene Creed, uh, a creed that summarizes the precious promises and hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. Uh, So let's say this together as a church family. Um, If you can, please feel free to stand as we do so together. So together we say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. 
we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Susan Rimmer will now come and lead us in our church family prayers. our prayers today by saying together the Advent Collect for today and you'll have it either on your in your service sheet or on the screen we say together almighty God give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility that on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead we may rise to the life immortal through Jesus Christ our Lord Amen as we look towards Christmas let's pray for our mission partners Ben and Jenny, living in a Muslim-majority Middle Eastern country. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for Ben and Jenny and all Christians living in countries going through times of political upheaval, when the impact of the unrest must have a significant effect on their lives and witness. May they be aware of your abiding daily presence. Give them wisdom, grace, and courage as they seek to share the Christmas story of good news during what must be a dangerous and challenging time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A prayer for peace in our troubled times. Sovereign Lord, as we continue to pray for an end to the ongoing war in Ukraine, We are now grieving at the terrible violence and destruction and huge death toll of innocent civilians, including thousands of children in Israel and Gaza. Comfort the mourners, and there are many waiting to hear the plight of missing loved ones. We pray for the thousands whose homes have been flattened and who are now homeless. We pray for the relief agencies, reaching out to those who have lost everything. We cry out for those who have been injured and traumatized and for the hospitals and medical workers who are struggling with limited resources and overwhelming needs. Father God, in this relentless turmoil as it dominates our daily lives, We ask for worldwide political, military and religious leaders to stand up and show a genuine willingness to seek and find an end to hostilities and to broker a just and lasting peace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. But thank you, Lord, that because of your great love for us, We can find hope and peace in the many promises you give us in your word. And as Simon has just shared, help us to keep calm and hold on to God's word, your word, 
and on to Emmanuel, God with us.